Hello, Cachimbonas. I am so excited today to have the lovely Paulina Vera of Hermanas in the Law here today to talk about a law review article called Silent Screams from Within the Academy, Let My People Grow. And actually, this is something that our mutual friend recommended, and then she couldn't do the interview. So shout out to you, anonymous friend, <laughs> recommending this article because I enjoyed reading it. I enjoy um, the perspective of academics of color on this issue of surviving in you know, white academia. And you yourself are a Latina professor of the law. Who better to have this conversation with than you? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, this is definitely a topic that I have personal experience with and um, that I've been thinking a lot recently as I think about my long-term ter- career in academia. Oh yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that too at the end, kind of like how are you committed to academia or are you like over it? But we'll save that for later. <laughs> so the piece starts with a poem by Don Lee and I wanted to ask you, what did you think Don Lee meant when he said his teacher taught him, quote, how to be inferior without hate, how to, quote, accept most things against my will, and, quote, how to not be Black? I mean, for me, I took it, especially in the context of this piece, as a way to get by without essentially bringing your true self, right? In this case, it's a Black person. In my case, it would be you know, being Latina, being a woman, some other examples in the the piece, right, talk about being queer in academia. It's sort of how to fly under the radar by, Mm -hmm. well, a lot of times we already stick out because we look different or talk different or act or think differently, but Mm -hmm. how to sort of scale back those things in the name of professionalism. It's something that we definitely see, definitely see in academia. Um, I think the legal profession generally has an issue with this, right? It's, It's the idea that, oh, women need to wear skirt suits to court and like pantyhose. Like oh that's, God, I hate that. You know, that's still like a rule in some, in some courtrooms. And I... In some courts, yeah. Sort of in my own little ways com- combat that because for a while I think I did do that. But now I just wear crazy... I have crazy long acrylic nails that are in fun colors and wear red lipsticks and red suits and hoop earrings and you know I even wear some of these things to court in front of judges and it's sort of my way of saying look I'm still a good attorney because I think I am a good supervisor but I can also I don't have to blend in to go unnoticed but of course obviously this piece talks about how there's drawbacks to some of these things too yeah well I think you've experienced some of the drawbacks right like you've talked about how in student emails people have talked about you being quote unprofessional and it's like are you just saying that because she's a Latina with acrylic nails and hoops that she's not qualified to teach this course? And if so, we need to unpack that. Yeah. And it actually wasn't even an email. It was worse. It was in a student evaluation. So just for context, I am not a tenure track professor, a visiting professor. I kind of have this weird quasi position where I'm a supervising attorney with a clinical program at my institution. But because I've been there for a while and because my boss who is a tenured professor, advocates for me a lot. I've taken on additional teaching responsibilities. So I'm technically a professorial lecturer in law. And one semester he was on, actually two semesters, he was on sabbatical and I covered his immigration law one course. And it was my first time teaching. And so the student evaluations I'm referencing um, deal with that course. And I'm tr- I tried to pull it up so I could read it to you. But yes, basically the evaluations came back 
and I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of for how much money we pay for this degree, we should have someone who is more um, of an experienced professional. While uh, Professor Vera is knowledgeable, um, she cannot possess the level of professionalism given that she graduated law school in 2015. Um, and, and we really need someone more experienced. (laughs) So I say that's worse than an email because that's now on my permanent record as part of my institution. And a lot of times, right. When professors, um, then go Mm -hmm. on the market, right. They're trying to get tenure track positions or I guess any sort of position at an institution, those will be looked at. Those are looked at by your own institution as far as raises or, um, promotion, in title goes. So I will say like, it was combated by other students who I think more so related to me. And so I can kind of from other interactions in the class, sort of ascertain who it was that left me (laughs) that that type of evaluation. But yeah, I've definitely experienced things like that before. Have plenty of anecdotes when it comes to that. Well, actually, that's the perfect transition because the author brings up how anecdotes are really critical to critical race, <laughs> critical to critical race theory. <laughs> because the, which it is like narrative storytelling is something that critical race theorists talked about as being necessary to be a counter narrative to these normative ways of thinking that we've inherited because we are living in a white supremacist society and that it's really through people of color speaking out their experiences and sharing the anecdotes of their lives that it can only be then that we can actually overcome at the very least begin to have kind of a counter narrative um, or like a counter way of being. And he brings up how the experience of Professor Lopez White, and these are people who he's they're based on real people, but he's like changed their names so in order to anonymize them because obviously they would likely face repercussions if they were to, if people were to know that they were saying these things about the institution. But this person is yeah. generally regarded by her colleagues as uncollegial. And I bring this up because collegiality isn't a written tenure standard. It's just one of those things that you kind of have to implicitly understand about this culture. And that's things like that are like the unwritten rules that really disadvantage like first gen students of color. So I wanted to ask like if you'd ever had an experience like that where, you know, well, I guess this, I think, is an example of the nails thing because it's just it's like a microaggression. You know, it's just a microaggression of a different type because mm. it's like, what are you really saying when you mean uncollegial? Like, do I make you uncomfortable? Right. <laughs> and I think that that's also it's not even just making someone uncomfortable. I think it's also faculty of color, maybe not, you know, someone said in the one of the stories that he told that they didn't go to the faculty lounge unless they were like picking up their mail. So it's maybe not even just going out of your way to spend time with other faculty because you just know that those microaggressions and those other things are going to come your way if, again, you sort of present yourself in your true form. And so I personally haven't experienced this directly. I definitely like haven't been called uncollegial, but I, I have experienced, right, the assumption that I'm not a professor. Um, So like I've been called by other, this is by other staff and faculty members. So like people, one time I remember I was on a call and it was for this like program that I'm involved in for for first year law students. And someone called me the clinic person. (laughs) And I was like a clinic, I'm a clinic 
professor. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, and then I think other faculty that do know, like I'm a professorial lecturer in law, yeah, are maybe often like I can see like sort of a look of confusion on their face when they first interact with me because again, I'm. I, I have what I call the trifecta. I'm younger, I'm a woman, I'm Latina. And so mm-hmm. a lot of academia mm-hmm. is much older. They also, mm-hmm. you know, many of them went to Ivy League institutions, which I did not, and, you know, tend to be white. And so I, I just recall from my conversations, which yeah. were great conversations because when I open my mouth and talk about immigration law, it becomes abundantly clear that I know what I'm talking about. And these professors have even commented that they've learned things from our conversation. But I think it's at first they're like, wait, you're the pro- <laughs> like you're the professor. Like you can just say, you know, they're not very good about hiding their <laughs> expressions. And so I think I get a little bit of of that, which I can mm-hmm. see, right? If you and I, what I'm in my fourth year at my position, if you have a lifetime of this or decades of this, um, mm-hmm. it, which is the case of some other uh, faculty of color that I've spoken to, as I think more about my role in academia. And many of them have been called uncollegial. And I can understand like the root of that, right? If that's your day to day over and over again, are these really going to be the people you want to spend time with? Right. So you've been, you talked about how at the beginning you felt pressured to succumb to certain standards of presentation, but eventually you started feeling more comfortable being more of your full self in the courtroom. When did that happen and how do you continue to navigate that as you get more senior? Sure. So I think that that took place maybe two, no, maybe a little bit longer, maybe three years into me practicing. I'm, I'm now in my sixth year of practice. I switched positions. I used to work at a nonprofit. And when I was a baby attorney, I definitely adhered to this idea that, you know, had to wear like muted colors, not draw too much attention to myself, would never like deign to wear to wear hoops to court. Um, And then I think when I transitioned to the institution, you know, especially starting off a job, you're trying to get a feel for like the work culture. And again, you don't want to attract attention to yourself in a negative way. But then, I mean, I guess humble brag, I feel like my work speaks for itself. I was getting getting wins (laughs) in court, like I've gotten Mm -hmm. awards You've also won awards, yes. Yeah, from the Hispanic Bar Association of DC, from the National Hispanic National Bar Association. And I think I was just tired. <laughs> you know, I was just tired of not feeling like I could be myself or I was hiding parts of myself. Mm, or I, had, I feel that. that I had to put on front, like I had to talk a certain way and act a mm-hmm. certain way. And it, it just gets really exhausting. So I think these things kind of came together. And there was just a point where I was like, you know what? I can't like <laughs> I think soul crushing was something that maybe was brought up in the argue on the article and I felt like my mm-hmm. soul was being crushed a little bit and so slowly like I started to do <laughs> some of these things and right I guess to mix results I mean I've talked about sort of the negative things but I also will say that I have had a lot of student of color who students of color who have gone through the clinical program who continue to be my mentees to this day. I think one of the things, right, that the article talks about is how faculty of color are often de facto mentors to students of color. And I do think... Right. And honestly, also other students, just because, like, I feel like... I don't know. There's, like, this kind of... I think on the part of white people, there's this weird expectation of emotional labor on the part of people of color and professors of color, right? Because I noticed that a lot, like, the women of color professors were overwhelmed because... There was so many students of color coming to them and also non-minority students as well, (laughs) because 
they're just like, oh my God, you're like one of the few leftist professors here and you're kind. <laughs> I want to talk to you. It's a lot. And it's all unpaid Oh yeah, too. A- absolutely. And so, yeah, I've definitely also gotten to a point where I'm currently with my institution trying to negotiate a salary raise, which unfortunately is a more bureaucratic process than I had originally anticipated. But one of my stated reasons, right, is that there's a ton of unpaid labor that I do regarding students of color. And so I think like me presenting myself as I am, like I definitely, you know, I think students seek me out for that reason, which I love to do because part of the reason why I'm in academia is I loved, I do love to interact with my law students, but yeah, you're right. It's not. It's like you're such a natural like mentor or a femtor, if you will, because that's why you do it about us in the law. Exactly. But then, yeah, to your point, eventually it it weighs on you that you're like, I'm doing all this extra work on top of my already really hard work working immigration laws, like not for the faint of heart. So I'm like, I need to be paid, you know, like for doing these things and taking on all this extra stuff. And I think that that's like a sense that a lot of faculty of color have um, when it comes to like our roles outside of just like, I guess, our academic endeavors. Yeah. And I feel like it's really important to self-promote and that I know might be an uncomfortable idea for some people, but I like write down the concrete things I have brought to the table and done for cases, because if I don't keep track of it, then nobody else will. Because everybody is, even those who have super supervisory duties are swamped. And so it's just like, that's where I think implicit bias comes in. And this really toxic nonprofit culture that assumes that everybody that's employed there is not problematic, that they're, they already know how to live out the values, because, of course, that's what they're doing every day, allegedly, right? It combines to make it a really toxic mm-hmm. workplace for people of color. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's definitely differences between my experience, I guess, working in nonprofit and working in academia. One of them being is actually a funding to like mm. hire interpreters and things like that. Um, Love that. Luxurious. I know. <laughs> like, like we have, girl, we have FedEx. I'm like, wow. Like, wow. I used to have to like beg my old supervisor for folders to hold our clients' documents. I like found a money oh order like just in a random drawer. I was like, this is going to be grounds for malpractice. <laughs> no. <laughs> like we need folders. But anyway, but I think you're, I think as far as attitudes go, I mean, I definitely think you can see some similarities, right? Like what you just described, like, and yeah, I guess it's different in nonprofit because the expectation is that, that people care more about the mission. Maybe I wouldn't expect that as much in academia, but, but even purportedly some of the people that do care about these things, right? Their actions <laughs> speak otherwise. Yeah. And I would hope that people in academia care about the mission. Ugh, that's what I hate about academia is that it's so research oriented. And like, you know, like so oriented around producing scholarship and not at all around teaching. Like there's some professors who I, I knew were brilliant, but like their skill at lecturing, at like communicating these ideas to a group of people, not the best. Like, it's like, a, there's like a few classes from law school that I was just like, I have no idea what the fuck this area was about. And I feel like, honestly, like our profession like breeds that too, because I always, I always joke with my boss that yeah. my dream class to teach at law school is like common sense 101. And I would like to teach, I'm dying. Like teach people like how to, actually talk like a normal person and like and think and you know I'm thankful for clinical programs I actually think that they should be mandatory in law school because 
I was going to say that. Yes, this helps so much yeah. with this because like sometimes people come in like not knowing how to talk to a client. I know, and I'm like, <laughs> oh no, like, because yeah, literally I'll ha- I've had students that'll come into the room and I'll be there like supervising a meeting and they'd be like, okay, so tell me the last time you were persecuted in your country. And I'm like, Right. I'm right. Like, it's like oh hello sir like how are you I'm like uh no let's try this again like why do you say hi like I always know which of my clients have kids, I have their kids. like of course like, normal you can't just jump into that you have to build trust you know like a human but I just feel like some like you're saying some people are just so intelligent that 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 common sense normal human no action. that's a lack of emotional intelligence is it not emotional intelligence thank yeah. you, yes but I feel like what you're speaking of with with some of the professors too I think it's their lack of emotional intelligence like they can't connect to their students in like a lecturing sense because they're just so brainy that yeah. like, all they can talk about is these really esoteric ideas and that's honestly one of the reasons why I hated most of law school except for clinic because right I just same. felt like we talked about law and no I want to know how this like affects real people like and what and what are the policy considerations that led up to this? Like, why? You know, I just felt like it was just so much more than just let's talk about the commerce clause. Like, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> commerce clause will always haunt me. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. I so I feel like yeah, our profession and legal academia generally sort of breeds that attitude, and I think it's very unfortunate. <laughs> Especially if you're going to work in public interest, I'm like, no, we cannot we cannot be doing it like this (laughs) yeah the law school curriculum is actually like so jarring when I realized for example speaking of the commerce clause like somebody could graduate from Stanford law and never learn about the 14th amendment because of our weird like quarter system con law is just devoted to basically like seriously just the commerce clause and then you have to take 14th amendment separately that is absolutely absurd that's how our that's how mine was too it was like that's crazy to me it was mandatory first year and it was like mostly about commerce clause that's why I was like joking that I'm traumatized I know I was like when do we get to the good stuff and then we never did con law two that was about all the amendments exactly yeah con law two is not required I just took it because I heard it was good for the bar slash Ah! I care about my rights (laughs) I wanted to learn about it I know it was just told to me like oh it's this is important for public interest law and then it's like oh oh right 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 equal protection yeah exactly oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah and I mean some of that too especially like fourth amendment like applies to my clients now so I'm like I'm so happy like I kind of understand this. but again it was like me seeking it out you know it being mandatory no I know literally like I would ask like deportation defense lawyers what classes are good for me to take to get prepared and that's like the only reason I took right. criminal procedure you know, that's yeah. where I learned about the Fourth Amendment. So, yeah, which is always relevant, always relevant. especially yeah. at the border. <laughs> okay, so you are a millennial. I'm a millennial. What did you think of Alexander's claim that Gen X doesn't feel the passion of the 60s generation because they didn't experience that same level of visceral racism? I feel like that's kind of an oversimplification. Yeah, for sure. First of all, I in academia, just the makeup of academia generally and statistics support this like nationwide tends to be older and a lot of them are boomers, which I believe is a 60s generation. They may have had mm-hmm. that passion 
at some point, like maybe in their heyday and maybe doing some of the, the work that eventually got them into positions of tenure in academia. But I, I don't think that that's sustained in a lot of cases, right? I think that's the problem now with like diversity initiatives and getting more faculty of color and making declarations as an institution when it has to do with civil rights and stuff like that are because these people who have become gatekeepers and they don't necessarily have that passion anymore, right? So that's like one thing. And then Gen X, okay, maybe they didn't face that the same level of like blatant racism, but obviously we know that like racism takes form, lots of different forms, not just like blatant. And it can be more um, implicit, which is more insidious in a lot of cases too. And also, I don't know, I, I think it'd be worthwhile like examining, right, sort of what I was saying before about professors of color, like not wanting to be collegial. I mean, I'm sure there's a certain point, and I, again, I've seen this with other faculty of color that I've spoken to, like at a certain point, they just get like tired, kind of like I did. I got tired and went the other direction, but I think some people get tired and they just stop fighting the good fight or stop pushing it hard. And, and so I think that's why I say that's yeah. like, that statement is mm-hmm. perhaps an oversimplification. That's how I feel. <laughs> I think it's for sure an oversimplification because I do know a lot of really, well, I don't know about a lot. I do know a good number of Gen Xers who have really good politics, but there is something that I've picked up on and I feel like it's generally Gen X or maybe even I've seen a few older millennials fall into this problematic category where they are, they're not really able to pick up on the more subtle forms of racism. And if something isn't bloody Sunday, then it's not racism. And Mm. in, but, but now that I think about it, there's millennials like that too. It's not, it's not a generational thing, is it? Yeah, basically the Gen Zers are going to save us all, I guess. <laughs> I know. I, lo- I actually like love the Gen Zers. They give me so much hope, you know? Like they, yes, I love the teens. Yeah. I love them. I think the other thing too, that's maybe true of Gen Xers and some millennials, although I feel like millennials like us, where it's sort of the shift, is that now we also like have more vocabulary and like more yeah. ways to name things. And I feel yeah. like our ideas on this are like a little bit more fleshed out because it's hard, right? With the, like implicit stuff. I had a student challenge me blatantly. I think I told you about this blatantly in class where he interrupted me like so many times that finally I had, to, <laughs> it was a white male student. He didn't agree with my idea. And mm-hmm. so I was actually trying to like approach it as an academic and ask him open-ended questions and yeah. flesh out his ideas because I felt yeah. like they were not correct. And he just kept interrupting me. And finally I had to tell him because the whole class was watching this. Right. And I had to tell him, please stop interrupting. Yeah. I literally said, rein it in. I, let me talk. And then once I finish my thought, you can go ahead and finish your thought. And then after I was mm-hmm. like, okay, would you like to respond? And he refused to look me in the eye. He looked straight ahead. He said, no, I'm done. Ew. And then, what a weirdo. I mean, after class, <laughs> I was so upset that I like called my me. My boss was yeah. like on sabbatical, so I kind of interrupted his like peaceful sabbatical. But I called. Him, uh, I guess you did. Time to be an ally, friend. Exactly. So I called him, and I was crying, and I was just like, "Am I being crazy?" And that's like a no. lot of times, right? You feel like you're being crazy, like you exactly. Don't know what exactly. The feeling yes. is, and and I was like, "Am I just being?" sensitive and he's like because of how assured he was that can be actually unsettling because you're just like whoa 
this to me is like at face value, surface level, so blatantly unacceptable. And you're still acting like it's socially acceptable for you to be doing this. And no one's intervening. And this is weird as hell. (laughs) And so my boss like reassured me. He's like, no, like what you're feeling is totally valid. Like, thank, thank, you know, thank you to him for validating my feelings. But then I was further validated because actually a black woman in my class emailed me shortly after. And she said, never in my whole academic career have I seen this level of disrespect towards the professor. Like rest Mm -hmm. assured, if you were not, if you had been an Ivy League educated white male attorney, this would have never happened to you. And he was like, thank you. She said, thank you for your level of professionalism and how you handled the situation. But I was like, okay, so other students are picking up on it too. Like, it's not me. Like, I'm not crazy. But I think that's why it can be hard to talk about this because it's like, how do I name this? How do I prove that what I'm feeling Mm -hmm. is valid? Mm -hmm. Like, how do I get other people to understand like how I felt in that moment standing in front of a classroom of 30 students, having this student like just challenge me, like it was no big deal. Like he had a right to do that. So I don't know. It's hard, but thankfully right having other students of color and having other faculty of color I think has definitely helped me navigate some of those like crazier situations do you remember the anecdote of professor Matumba why don't you refresh my memory (laughs) (laughs) this was a person who he said brought bitterness to her work oh right right and then I just wanted to ask, like, from your reading, did you think that she was bitter or she was just exploited? <laughs> because, and I say this because I think it's a perfectly, it's a really understandable reaction to be bitter about all this fucked up shit you have to deal with unnecessarily. But yeah, I just wanted to ask what you thought. Yeah, I agree 100%, especially it sounds like this person is trying to be like their authentic self and right. just be them at work. And I mean, I can only imagine what goes on in the faculty meetings because a lot of these faculty meetings too for, for full-time tenured faculty are in closed session. And so there's like no records of it. They're not supposed to share what goes on. So it's like super secretive. You know, I can only imagine the things that have been said about her ideas or even privately amongst other professors, like I also get a sense sometimes, right? Like in any workplace, people can be gossipy and people have reputations and things like that. And so yeah, I guess it goes to the collegiality, right? right? So I, I, I totally agree. I think living with those things day to day because you're being yourself and like advocating for your communities and challenging the norm, right? All things that we should want, <laughs> in an academic setting, you would think academic freedom, we would want to be having mm-hmm. these discussions, but to get negative reactions, of course, I, you're going to be bitter. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's something you work so hard to attain because yeah. in addition to right. like going to law school, she probably has like other degrees besides her JD. Right. Like she might have a PhD, very likely. Or LLM, like, you know, or like amazing practice experience or publications. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, she probably has more because actually another excellent book that I think complements this article really well is called Unequal Profession by Mira Dio, I believe is the professor's name. And she talks about the experience of women and then particularly women of color versus like white males. And there's all this like, I mean, from anecdotes, right? Because again, a lot of these things are not published, like you don't have to be collegial to get tenure, but a lot of the criteria 
is factored into it. Right. Yeah. It's like the subtext. Right. Exactly. And so like a lot of times, actually women of color, like the stated thing will be like, you must have two publications to be on the tenure track, for example, but then really all like the faculty of color have like five publications because they know that they're two versus like a white man is not going to be enough. So they like literally go above and beyond what the stated requirements are to try to like ensure that they get tenure. Yeah. (laughs) So fucked up. So it's like, you know, that this person is hella qualified and then had even more things that they had to do on top of just like someone else who had an in and, you know, came from privilege and weren't questioned about like who they are. (laughs) So yeah, I wouldn't be bitter too. I completely understand that. Exactly. (laughs) At what point Carlos Cuevas quoted and he says that there's kind of a crossroads that people of color face in this profession where you either become the go along to get along guy or you become the lone ranger because the person alone that's advocating for things to be equitable and you're it's the lone ranger because you will be likely alone in doing that and I wanted to ask if that resonated with you because definitely resonated with me I think I'm very outspoken and I would say kind of like early on in my legal career just decided I didn't want to do respectively politics at all because the people who are committed to misunderstanding me are going to misunderstand me no matter how I speak and the people who are willing to really listen don't care how I speak. They, they receive the message either way. So that and that is how I navigate the workplace in order to keep my soul semi-intact. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask, like, does that resonate with you? And how do you how do you like keep the scales balanced? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely does resonate with me. I think it kind of depends on your work environment too. Cause I, again, I, I sort of approached it differently at the nonprofit setting. I think I was kind of like you where people were like, <laughs> well, first of all, I just felt like there was a lot of hypocrisy sometimes in the nonprofit setting where it's like, Oh, we're for workers rights. But then like, we don't treat you know, our workers like, Hello. like <laughs> the oh, way that they should be treated, like have breaks and, you know, um, maybe not work, work themselves into the ground. And so <laughs> That was like one way of me approaching it. I think in academia, like any workplace, it also is going to depend a lot, like the environment. One of the things right out of this article is like a call to action, essentially, for administration. And I do think that that's a good place to start because definitely, you know, there needs to be some sort of leadership as far as like, we're going to care, actually care about diversity in like a meaningful way, not just like hiring one or two people, but trying to hire more people, trying to nurture people through their careers, maybe looking at some of these implicit biases that they encounter in their classroom and amongst other faculty. Oh, so I guess, yeah, you have to look at it that way. And I I think I I feel fortunate now and that like, um, we have our first woman dean, and she's a black woman, and she's been, you know, pushing a lot of these initiatives. And so I do sort of feel like I'm in a space right now that maybe I could, you know, point to things and say, like, this is where we should do better. Mm. But I don't know. It, it, right, you feel more comfortable voicing that now that she's there. Yeah. Right, exactly. But I also think, I don't know, it, it's hard because I also don't think it should just be all on a Black woman to change everything yeah. for us. I, the change has to come within the rest of the faculty and some of these people that, you know, have, and it's not even, I'm not like just trying to call it my institution. I think this is like nationwide, right? Like individual professors and like their practices for tenure and like, 
in faculty meetings and how people speak up and how they weigh scholarship versus what are called like like more service requirements, like mentoring mm-hmm. students and things like that. So it's hard, right? Because like you, right? Like some people are just flat out never going to be receptive to that. Some people aren't going to like the delivery no matter how I deliver it. So I feel like I'm right. still sort of trying to figure out like my voice in academia and all of this. Um, I guess one one of the things I've settled on is like having Hermanas in the Law, which is my platform to like mentor um, aspiring Latina law students, Latina law students and Latina lawyers. And like through that, I also, you know, talk about the experiences that they have, which obviously include academia and then just talk about my experiences in academia in general with the hopes that, you know, maybe the next generation, because it's not just going to be me, right? That faces all of this, but like maybe these other voices will come in because that's the other thing too about academia and faculty of color. A lot of faculty of color have described their experience coming into academia as like a complete accident. Like I know very few academics, academics of color who have like, at least in the legal and legal academia that have been like, Oh yes. When I was in law school, like I aspired to be a law professor. Like I did not aspire to be a law professor when I was in law school. Like that was something that completely this position opened and then I start taking on more responsibility. And now I'm thinking about it as a long-term career. Like I, it was total accident. And like, apparently that's how a lot of other people feel too. So maybe also we start like, pl- one of the other solutions I think that this article could have talked about is encouraging law students of color that this career path for them, and this is something that mm-hmm. they can do, and this is how they can do it. Yeah. And here are like the mentorship opportunities that are available to them. Like, for example, I'm very thankful there's a Latino law professor listserv where articles are circulated. And actually, one that I just saw before I jumped on this call is that 5.4% of all ABA accredited law schools have Latino deans, Latinx deans, which someone calculated to be like 11 deans in a lot of all the law schools. So yeah, I was like, uh, Latino deans, I'm sure we can count those on our hands right exactly also I'm sure there's some white presenting Latino deans right and so like yeah the solution solution proposing this is like administration needs to do stuff which I am in agreement but I also just don't think I think there's so many other things too that we need to think about when it comes to that Um, and I think all of these all of these parts right sort of inform how I'm learning to shape my voice when I'm in academia and calling out the things that (laughs) academia needs to change and do a lot better on Right. That was a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> well, it was, just, it was just a very complicated question, yeah. you know. So I, pre- I appreciate <laughs> the nuance. So in one of the footnotes, there was an article where a professor talks about this inner conflict that she had where she was like tempted to fly under the radar and teach something like contracts without any mention of race or gender. And then eventually comes to the conclusion that race and gender are always with us. And as a Black woman, she felt it was her duty to infuse that into her curriculum. Do you feel compelled to do the same? Absolutely. Especially the area that I teach, which is immigration law, both in a clinical setting and when I lectured for immigration law class. And actually, I am still a guest lecturer for many immigration law courses. Absolutely. I feel the same, compelled to do the same because I don't believe that law exists in a vacuum. I think it's informed by, especially immigration law, but many areas of law are informed by policy and politics and, you know, international affairs. And I mean, we've seen that, right, with different waves of immigrants and like the U.S. reception to them. I also 
something that I've gotten from my boss, who's my mentor, is that immigration law is ultimately about people. Like he always says that at the beginning of his class. He's like, it's about the it's about the people. And so like he actually creates his own course pack that I essentially adopted and then like tweaks for my own purposes. Yes. And a lot of them are about articles that are about stories about immigrants. And he really I think does a good job centering voice of immigrants. I mean, I think that's the way to do it because again, these decisions by lawmakers have very real effects on real people. And for me, right, people that could very well be my family. Like I've had undocumented members of my family. You know, both my parents were immigrants, although I will say that they had a little bit more privilege in the way that they they immigrated to the United States. But you know, these affect very real people. And I work with these people on a daily basis. So of course, I'm going to center their stories and talk about how these things are affecting them. And I know that that doesn't resonate with a lot of people, because actually another criticism I got in my class was it was too many articles and not enough talking about the the statute, like immigration law, like we should. Oh, we should, bitch, you do not want to talk about the INA. You will fall the fuck asleep 10 minutes. Yeah, for it. anyone who's not familiar we will have so much time to look at the INA. Please stop being a downer. Exactly. If anyone knows anything about the INA, first of all, it's been compared to the tax code and its complexity. Like, who the hell wants to read the tax code? Second of all, literally, so- actually, though, like, yes, it, it has so many sub references. Like, you'll read a paragraph and it'll be like, see, par- see this, see this, see this part. Like, yes, it's incredibly self referential. It's like, a joke. you're like, what is this even saying to me? <laughs> so it's like, I'm trying to teach you by like, also the way I w- was trying to teach it was like, I'm trying to show you the story and then I'm asking you to like approach it like an attorney. Like, what do you see? Because when I g- get a facts of a case, right, I'm like, okay, this person might be eligible for this, 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 and this. And hello, so it's called issue work- spotting, child. Issue spotting. So, like, working backwards, right? Like, we're not going to read the INA first and then, like, <laughs> I mean, so, I'm like, and how I'm dry do you want to make this? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> exactly. And, like, that that's what this student wanted. I guess this was a complaint that it was too much about, like, centering the people and whatever. But, that's all well and good if you have the INA memorized, like good for you, but you're not going to be a very good attorney. Like at least. No, not good for you. That's weird as hell. Yeah. (laughs) That was like very sarcastic. Good for you. (laughs) I don't actually think that's good for you. I think like you to seek. I think it's very bad for you actually. You need to seek therapy if like that's your idea of fun. Like also you could be doing so many other things with your time than like reading the INA. Like please don't do that. But yeah, like if you go out into practice as an immigration attorney and you're just like approach it like, oh, I will find all my solutions to INA. First of all, no, you won't. Like there's all these policy memos. There's literally just, <laughs> right. there's literally talking just to attorneys to be like, this is what I did in my case. Like, I feel like, well, that, yeah, what does this immigration judge care about? What does this one exactly, arbitrarily care about? Like that is more informative to me than the freaking INA. The INA may say something like point blank and I could bring it to a judge. And if that judge, for example, we have a sitting judge in Arlington that literally came from FAIR. He could literally, he would find a way to deny. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what the fuck? I didn't know about that. Oh yes, girl. He came from FAIR and I actually debated wow. him on a show one time. Where- <gasps> what show? It was CGTN, I think is a Chinese news station. And What? That's iconic. And so he actually, I, actually I was Kamala before Kamala was Kamala because he interrupted me at one point and I literally said, I was not done talking. And then I kept going. <laughs> Oh my god, you're such you'd be such a better vice president. I would die. Uh, but yeah, anyways, that man <laughs> was literally on the show. I was Kamala before Kamala was Kamala. <laughs> I fucking die. 
literally was on the show being like, yeah, like gender based violence. Like that's not a basis for us. I was just like, bro. And then then Sessions (laughs) put him in as an immigration judge. And some of my clients are going to have hearings with him. I think next year is the first one. So wish me luck. Because literally I could point to the freaking INA and he'd be like, nah. Like I already know that 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 case is going to be like. I don't know what you're referring to, but no. <laughs> exactly. Like they're going to, that case I'm preparing for appeal. You know what I mean? And that's yes. And then so like, demoralizing, honestly. INA. Yeah, for sure. It's like you put in all this work just to know, oh, I'm going to lose. And so I'm putting all this effort in so that I can build a good record. So that on appeal, like I can maybe win this on appeal. It's just right. like, so it's demoralizing if you have to do that over time. Exactly. So those experiences are what I tried to bring to the classroom, like the common sense, like the practical things. Actually, some of my clinic students comment, you know, they're like, I felt like it was more work figuring out how this IJ, this immigration judge wanted their filing than like the actual substance of the claim. And I'm like, yes, welcome to the profession. Like, this is what it is. You know, (laughs) like, I feel like I get so many clients, they text me like, hey, my work permit application has been pending for like a thousand years like what's going on and I spend like half my time trying to figure out what's going on you know so it's like or honestly just like trying to I feel like there's a lot of people who are legitimately bewildered by how arcane the U.S. immigration process is especially because of how the U.S. is you know it's imperialist projects and how it's portrayed itself as a result people are just like wait really like this is the like it's like they're just gonna have me waiting for two years for a work permit it's like yeah yeah I mean, and two years waiting for anything at immigration is actually, like, good. <laughs> like, that's, like, short, uh, which is sad. But, I'm like, crying. you know, these are the kinds of things I want to bring to the classroom. To me, that's more helpful than let me just sit up here and lecture the INA, you know? Like, I want to teach you, like, how to actually be an attorney. Because even when I was a baby attorney and I had clinical experience and stuff, I was still like, are you sure this is not malpractice? Because there are, like, a lot of things I don't know. And you guys are just, like, letting me go f- <laughs> eventually I learned obviously and I did not <laughs> do anything without researching but yeah. <laughs> well that's honestly every new lawyer yeah. let's be honest this profession is awful it's just like all right good luck yeah, but that's like my problem with <laughs> push you off the diving board with law school it's like they don't teach you like the realities and like all no. the things they're influencing the law and like the practical things like it's all well and good to talk about like this case from like I say like yield English from like the 1800s about how we have crim law like that's all nice but like how is you know how is it crim law really impacting people like if you're gonna be a public defender like what is it like to having to be going to jail to jails and prisons to like talk to your client like let's talk about like that stuff like how can we actually like do the work you know not oh yeah like people were on a boat and then one decided to like eat the other one is that a crime like (laughs) <laughs> like man yeah I just feel like it's a, it's a I feel big, like I have a vague recollection of what you're talking <laughs> exactly it was a case of see is yeah it's just very intellectual and like esoteric and that's all well and good but I just would like to see legal academia a little bit more rooted in like the actual practice reality yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> Um, so the author ends the essay with saying there must first be a recognition that the people who are the subject of this essay are not paranoid whiners they are real people reacting to real problems and real situations do you think legal academia has recognized this uh no (laughs) i do not um (laughs) i think we're sort of in a moment where we're seeing 
you know, law schools reacting to Black Lives Matter and like putting out statements about how they're really committed to diversity. And that's all well and good. But until like your actions, again, reflect (laughs) what you're saying in the form of supporting students of color, supporting faculty of color with like meaningful support, you are just acting like as if they're just whiners. And I think another reason I know that legal academia hasn't recognized this is because we still every once in a while actually probably too too often we see at law schools these stories come out right of professors who say like wildly like racist misogynistic things in classrooms or they're accidentally or like they're accidentally recorded and like a student finds the recording yeah. and then you know the law schools like put out statements but they're tenured many of them are tenured so they don't actually have any repercussions or like not fired or anything like that and then they go on continuing to teach <laughs> law students with you know like obviously or like teach law students a you're like representing legal academia you would think you wouldn't want that representation but then also how traumatizing to your students who are sitting there listening to this so I just felt like and then the people right that react like this because there's always like balsa yeah. and lalsa and all those like the words. black lawsuit association and the latinx student well, association right they always the like latino make calls. student association many they um they always make calls right for something to actually happen to these professors and then like nothing does because it's tenure is sacred if you're right. like a white privileged male because there's definitely palestinians that have been fired in the u.s so that's oh that's true too yeah if faculty of color right they make quote-unquote problematic statements that are usually just like being critical of the norm then they're they're first to go but and it's not even just white males too it's like white women (laughs) that have made some of these statements recently right and they've also not had the had repercussions that faculty of color would have otherwise had so yeah I do think that people that call out these actions and things like that they are treated like like whiners or sort of like a problem to be dealt with but like give it time and we're just going to forget that this happens and not actually take any action. I think it's like snow, like related to the snowflakes discourse. It's like, oh, you're just being too sensitive. Just get over it. But it's so interesting because actually my, my boss for his immigration law one class, one of the classes that I guest lecture, he started this last year. It was his idea, but I really liked it. He was like, I want you to teach a class about what it means to be a Latina attorney, Latina supervisor and a Latina uh, professor. And like that sort of also naturally kind of went hand in hand with mental health. And so I taught this class and I had them do some background reading about like our low statistics and like, again, anecdotes of people of color, like in the legal space. And man, like I was not expecting the reaction that I got. Like I, you know, I told students, you know, this is a safe space. If you want to share your experiences, by all means, I'm not going to cold call you. I'm not going to require that you share, but a lot of students of color, a lot of queer students, they wanted to share their experiences. So it's like, you can call us snowflakes all you want, but the students now, like the student populations that we're seeing, of course, we still need to up our numbers because they're dismal, but the students of color that are in these spaces or the students who have otherwise been othered, they are starving for this kind of discussion. Like, that's what I saw. Like, they were just like, mm-hmm. it was basically just like a venting session. Like, everyone took turns talking about like their own experiences and you know it was just me like validating a lot of their feelings and telling them you know this is what I've done it sounds super healing yeah exactly and I and then my boss was like will you teach it again this year because clearly students like really took to this so I would yeah like again the older generations again I I said I think that they've 
sort of become gatekeepers in a lot of way. They might think it's like touchy feely, whatever, but ask your students what they want. <laughs> I bet you not all of them. Certainly we know people yeah. not react well, but those are not the, the, well, no, I teach to all my students, but right. Being a person of color who likes to mentor other people of color, like that's, you know, who I'm trying to reach. So I do think that there's a space where, where students really need that. And the truth is like, everyone needs to be in touch with their feelings. Like, right. Right. Maybe <laughs> like this aversion to being in touch with your feelings is why lawyers tend to suffer disproportionately from anxiety and depression. Like that's and definitely a correlation there. trauma and yeah. <laughs> well, sure. Belina, I've had you for about an hour and those are all the questions I wanted to ask. I don't want to keep you for too long. So is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to? Um, just to say, like, I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate articles like the one that, that we discussed today, like the book Unequal Profession, because like I said, I don't have a tenure track position right now. Um, and I am trying to think, you know, next steps in my own career. And if that does include trying to pursue some sort of tenure track position in academia, knowing now what I know, like, I don't, I didn't want to go into it blindly and like reading all these anecdotes, right? It's not going to be easy. I mean, nothing in my life or career has been easy, but like this, this journey in particular is not going to be easy. And so I just hope that people like in the legal profession start paying more attention to like what our experiences are like. And maybe it doesn't have to be. My thing is always like, I don't want it to be like this for the next generation. Exactly. Same. I hope the next generation of faculty of color will like look to these people that have already shared the stories. Maybe look to me if I decide that that's, you know, the path I want to pursue. And then, you know, hopefully I can also share my intern, share my experiences. And then yes. maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Like I can imagine a world where it doesn't have to be this way. So I just hope that that day comes sooner rather than later. <laughs> That's the perfect note to end on. It doesn't have to be this way. Belina, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. And I hope to have you back on again soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.